We were talking last week through this idea out of Revelation 21, of this idea that Jesus is going to make all things new. And what we talked about with this idea of making all things new is that what he meant is by its very nature, better quality than what we have right now. He was going to, he's going to take, and he's going to take who we are now, the world that we live on, and he's going to make it for, he's going to transform it and make it new in such a way that it was what it intended when God began. So in other words, when we, we talk about this, we talked about this idea that when, when Jesus comes back, he's, he's going to form a new creation. And we talked about that, that we're going to live on that real world. This world that we live on is going to be resurrected. That in 2 Peter 3, yeah, fire is going to come upon it and it is going to wipe away absolutely everything that was had to do with the fall. But the key thing about it is, is we are going to live on this very world. Also talked about just this idea we're going to have a new condition. There's going to be no more death. Ugh. No more pain. And some of the thoughts that went through my head were, can you imagine being on a planet where there's no more orphans? There's no more sickness. There's no more divorce. There's no more irrelevant busyness that we tend to get caught up in. We're not worried about our kids anymore. What he's talking about is, is that not only will he change things, but he'll change things radically, even within us. And he even goes so far as, and in the very center of all of it, the thing I don't want you to miss is the centerpiece of new creation, of this new heavens and new earth, is going to be God himself. That he is who we've longed for our whole lives, and in some ways we haven't even known it. And the whole key thing that I'm trying to get to is, is if this passage that we talked about last week is true, if, if literally it, this certain and safe and absolutely magnificent destiny for those whose names are written in the book of life, if this is really true, we can now live differently than you can imagine. We can live what some people might call radical, which to us we understand, if that's where my hope is tied, if that's where I'm going to spend my life, if that's what Jesus has in store for me, I can right now in this life live absolutely different. I can love different. I can treat people different. I can treat my things different. I mean, sometimes we have inside of our head this mentality, this is all we get. Let me tell you something. No, it's not. There is so much more in store for us. And one of the things that we're going to look at today is specifically this idea that this is what drove Paul to be this confident man. Is that he understood deep within himself that if you bank yourself too much in this life, too much in this world, that what's going to happen is, is that as this world does this, you're going to do this instead of being tied to this one day when Jesus comes back and sets everything straight. He had truly done what Jesus asked him to, and he was depositing treasures in heaven where neither moth can, can eat nor rust destroy. That's the way he lived his life. And what I'm hoping for is that what happens inside of Cornerstone and continues to happen, because I think it's been something that's been so key to who we are since this church began, is that we would authentically be this church that gauged our life, not in the here and now, but begin to live like we honestly believed what is in the future. That we lived this way and talked this way. And in fact, the way Paul, the way I would put it is that his secret in life, I really think, comes down to this. He was a man who was very forward living. In Philippians 3, he talks about this idea. He says, look, one thing I do is I consider all these different things. I forget them. I forget what lies behind me. And I press forward towards the goal, towards the prize to which I've been called. He says, I take all these things that have happened in the past, and it's not that he doesn't deny them, but they're all these works that that present to us that God is faithful, and so therefore I can live my life with an understanding that he will continue to be faithful even into the future. 
And so one of the things that we're going to be doing over the next few weeks as we look at this is we're going to be asking, what is it that gave him that boldness and that confidence that would allow us to live the same way? And I think the difficulty, and you know what I'm talking about when I say this, the difficulty is, is that we live in such a now generation. Friday, man, I, I was home with my daughter, and uh, I don't even, oh, my son was at preschool or something. I don't remember. My wife was gone, and I had to make lunch for my daughter. And so I thought, nutritious macaroni and cheese. <laughs> so I go get the box, and I grab the, 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 the pan, and I'm going to pour into it, you know, the water. And my daughter looks at me, and she goes, Daddy, what are you doing? I go, well, I'm making mac and cheese. She goes, oh, that's too slow. I go, what? And she reaches into the cupboard and pulls out the microwave mac and cheese. And I watch her. As she sits there, she goes over, gets her cup, puts the water into the cup, pours it into the bowl, grabs it, pours it in, puts the little thing in there, shoves it in the microwave. And she goes, this is much faster. <laughs> we live in such a time that, that we have to have it now. There's this pervasive occupation also, not only with having it now, but we want to, to live as long as possible, as healthy as possible, as wealthy as possible. And it's dramatically, I think, impacted the church because what starts to happen then is now all of a sudden we begin to live for the now. And in the living for the now, we forget that our confidence isn't here, but it's in the future. And I think the other thing that it's done is, is that this has so weakened our experience with God because as we banked our hopes on the here and now, we've forgotten that God's promises, while they are here, the revelation and the fulfillment of them are in the future. See, Paul understood something. He understood this very thing, and this is the way I would put it. Our hopes determine our habits. What we hope in most will determine our habits. So in other words, when you look at your habits, you should be able to understand where you place your hopes. And what Paul's going to do with the passage we're in today in, in 2 Corinthians 4.16, he's going to help us understand how is it that he was able to come to a point where he was able to place his hope where it mattered. In other words, he's not a super Christian. I don't want anybody to leave here thinking that somehow Paul was able to do something that we can't. And in fact, if you go back to like James, James talks about this idea that literally Elijah was a man just like us. That the same Holy Spirit that was in Paul can do this in us and we can live in this different, in this real way like Paul's talked about. We can have this hope, a hope that is like any other than we've ever known. And so what he's going to do in 2 Corinthians 4 is he's going to talk to us about this idea of how is it that he began to get his hope. So let me just read 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, and we'll kind of get launched off here. He says this. Oh, one more thing. I'm not putting verses up on the screen today. I've noticed, and it's one of those things that I'm going to try really hard to begin to do here, is that oftentimes we put the verses up there and we don't bring these things with us called Bibles. Now, some of you are going to go, are you so old school? <clears throat> what is he, like 39? <laughs> but the thing about it is, is you need to be in your Bibles. Too often what happens is churches begin to fall into false teaching because it's not so much necessarily the pastor. The pastor is who generally falls into it, but then the sheep go right along with him. I want you to be people that study the word for yourselves. And so I'm going to try not to put, see if you put those up on the screen. If you need a Bible, they're in the back. You can go grab one right now. Um, if you don't have one, I'm like super rich, and so I'll buy you one. Um, I'm not really. But it's just this thing, I want you to be in your own Bible. So this is what he says in verse 16. 
He says, so we don't lose heart. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are natural. Now here's what he's gonna do for us. All along, he's been arguing through why has there been pain in his life? Why has it that God, if he's really a servant of God, why has it that he's gone through pain? And what Paul's going to tell us is, is that this understanding is that pain and heartache and hardship, he's gonna, there's going to be two things he's going to lay out for us that are such a huge blessing for him that have created hope in his life. And the first one that he's going to lay out is this, is that pain and, and heartache and hardship, all these things have come to bear on him because it causes him to crone for the future him. That in other words, as pain and pressure come on down upon him, the very thing that it does because he possesses the Holy Spirit is, is that literally causes him to crave what God has for him. And let me show you what I'm talking about in this. Now, if you look at verse one, here's how he's going to start out. He's going to say, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. Now, that's the key thing. He's going to lay out for us that this life, the body we live in, is a tent. In other words, what he's trying to convey to us is that it's temporary. And the way that then he's going to go about and talk about it, if you look down there a little bit further in verse 2, he says, For in this tent we, and here's this word, groan. The idea that he's using behind groan is this great cry. And Paul uses this word when he describes what this earth is growing through in Romans 8, that he, he talks about it being the birth pangs. And he says, that's the very thing you are. It's the, it's the same groan that you would hear of a woman who's in the middle of childbirth. That in other words, yes, she's in intense pain, but why is she in pain? Because there's an expectation that in the end of that pain is going to be great reward. So in other words, what he's saying here is in this tent that his life comes down around me, literally what's happening to me is, is it's causing me to groan for the great reward that God has for me one day. David had it. When you, in in uh, Psalm 13, he uses this Hebrew word, chazanah, which literally the, the idea is it's like it's an automatopoeia, which means it sounds like what it is. It'd just be chazanah. It's just this idea of literally a great sigh when he was talking about, God, where are you? How long? How long will this carry on? Not only is it that, that this is grown, but look down in verse 1. It talks about this tent, and it says that this tent, our earthly home, is destroyed. Now, I think all of us in this room understand this quite well. Life is temporary and transient, and probably the better way to say this is, is that your bodies are slowly being dismantled. And you know what I'm talking about. Now, some of you are trying to deny it for everything that you are, but you know deep within you, it's not the matter of trying to prolong life. What you're trying to do is prolong the outcome, which is death. And Paul just says this in this blunt way, especially in verse 16, he just says this, our outer self is wasting away. Paul understood that, that eventually his life was going to come to an end. The other day I was sitting there talking with somebody and, and they said, you know what, I'm very fearful that the cancer I have is terminal. Let me just be very blunt with everybody in this room. Because you live on this planet, your life is terminal. You are currently terminal. 
It's not a matter of if you die, it's when we all die. And Paul knew that. He knew deep within him that literally this life was coming to an end. And what he's saying to us is, is that he was not going to bank on something that was currently being dismantled. I mean, can you imagine decorating a home that's going to be tore down tomorrow? You would think I was nutty if I walked in and I was like, yeah, there's a good place for a picture. Why don't we put the chairs over here? And you'd look at me and go, Man, that place is being torn down tomorrow. Why would you do that? And it's the same thing he's talking about here is is that it's not a matter of whether he's trying to not care for this, that he understands that his body is a temple, but he also understands this other side of it is is that there's no way in the world that he's going to seek to somehow artificially prolong life any longer than it has to. He understood that to live is Christ, but he understood this amazing statement, to die is what? Oh, gain. And so he couldn't wait for it. He also knew this idea of being burdened. Look at verse 4. He says, while we're still in the tent, we groan being, and he says this, burdened. The idea behind being burdened is literally this idea of pressure. So in other words, the way he's describing our life, and I think it's the life that all of us experience, is that number one, we groan. Number two, it's being destroyed. But the other part of it is this life is just a whole lot of pressure. And we know what we're talking about there. It's pressure at home. It's pressure at work. For some of you, it's pressure at school. Everywhere we go, Paul says, there's just absolute pressure, and it's weighing down upon us. And I've heard so many people say, and they kind of want to have this Calgon moment. They just want to take it away. It's this thing in the words like, oh, I just want out from underneath it. Well, let me tell you something. That is a very natural reality, and one day God's going to do it. He is going to free us from this pressure that we're under. And Paul talks about it. The one who has the spirit, this idea is, is that he wants so badly to have that. But the kicker in all of it is verse 6, this idea of this, this tent that we live in. He says, look, we know that while we're at home in the body, look at this word, we're away from the Lord. This summer, I, I traveled a little bit, and for most of it, I got to be with my family, which was really nice. But I'll never forget when my wife and I first met each other. We had met, I, had, um, I wasn't really following Jesus at the time, and, and uh, we got to know each other at a black student union dance, and, and in the middle of all of it, suddenly I realized, oh, she loves Jesus, and I'm kind of thinking about this whole loving Jesus thing. But as we started to get to know each other, I really started to love and appreciate who she was. Well, at the end of, this, of the school year, this guy calls me up and he's like, you need to go work at a camp. There's this camp down in Nebraska. It's in the middle of nowhere. You can't get yourself in any trouble there. And so I'm like, cool, I'm going to go to Nebraska. And he goes, not only that, but I think you'll be able to learn about, a lot about who God is. So at the time, I'm thinking, great, I love Jesus. I want to get away. I want to serve. And so I go down to Nebraska, but in the middle of all of it, I'm on my way to camp and I realize, wait, Lisa's not there. And for the first few weeks, and later on, you can ask for my man card, okay, what I'm about ready to say. <laughs> but I'm like writing notes to her, oh, baby, I miss you so badly, you know. And then at this point, there wasn't cell phones, so you had to use a phone card. And this was still, the phones went, trrr, trrr, you know. And so I'm like, baby, how are you? Camp's been great, I miss you, you know. And it was just all of these things where I couldn't wait to be near her. Well, finally... I was going to get to go visit my wife because I was going to get some time off. 
And so I was so excited. I remember talking to everybody at the camp that how much I couldn't wait to see her and, and all those notes that I'd written her, I had gifts for her and longing to go see her. And I was, even with the way we were talking is how can I get up there as quick as possible? And, and one guy even suggested that what I should do is wear depends so I don't have to pull over. And I mean, it was just this thing where we're like, I just can't wait to be with her. I didn't, by the way. But I remember finally driving up to her house and all I could think of is I can't wait to see her. At the bottom end of what Paul's talking about, probably the reason that most of us don't want to see Jesus is because we don't know him like we should. If we knew Jesus like we ought to know Jesus, we couldn't wait to see him. And Paul talks about this, like this one that is just craving, the, the one that he can't wait to see. And he's saying, in this life, that's what it's about. But he's going to do something so good here, in which he's now going to lay out for us, okay, if that's the tent, then what gave him hope? If, if this is what drove him to, to, to get away from it, I don't want to be anymore, what is it that drove him to hope? And look what he's going to talk about in verse 1. He says, look, yes, we do have a tent that's an earthly home that's being destroyed, But we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, can you imagine if I said, hey, I got this hot little number over here, this little tent here. Really fragile, falls apart like crazy. Or you can have this, built by God himself. Which do you want? On the outside level, what Paul is talking about is it's a no-duh thing. In fact, the way he calls it eternal is is that it's this idea that this is where you'll spend the rest of your existence. That this, this flesh that we live in now, it's only for a short time. But when he says it's eternal, the idea is that it's been built by God specifically to last forever and ever and ever. Not only that, but in verse 4, it has a quality to it. If you look at the very end, it says... This idea, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by, and he uses this word, life. It'll be by quality, new and different. Not only that, but if you get down to verse 8, and it's what I kind of talked about a second ago, he says, yes, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body, look at this, and at home with the Lord. You know what home feels like? I don't know if you've ever been away for a long time, but do you know what home feels like? Do you know the smells of your home? Some of you are like, I know my smell. (laughs) I know when I've gone to Africa for like two, three weeks at a time, and I'm sitting there, and it's always good what God does for me there, but there's this weird side of me that I just can't wait to get home. Even at work on certain days, man, it's just like, gosh, I'm in the office, you're dealing with all this different stuff, and there's this side of me that just can't wait to get home. I can't wait to take off my shoes. I can't wait to just relax. I can't wait to just be with my family because I know when I come in the door, my son is a true little boy, and when he sees me, it'll be, Daddy! (laughs) Wham! My daughter, who's kind of cool now, she's four, She'll come up behind and give me a nice kiss, Daddy. Here comes my wife. We have a little foster baby right now that I love to just sit there and hold. There's nothing more relaxing than feeding a baby, is there? But what Paul's conveying is is that one day, that's home. 
not safe here. It's not secure here. We don't like it. The idea is there will come a day where that literally, this life that we live will be gone and this body that we live in, that will be home. It will be what God intended us to be. And one of the things that I'm going to do is I just want to read for you three different passages just to kind of talk about what will our real bodies actually be like. Go with me to Philippians 3. Look at verse 20. And let me just lay out to you the first kind of picture of what we know our real bodies will look like. Philippians 3. And look at verse 20. I love the sound of pages. Oh, keep turning, keep turning. Oh, great sound. Verse 20 says this. Our citizenship, or the idea is where we really belong because we're strangers and aliens in this world, is in heaven. It's, a, it's a, an idea, though, of, of the idea of what was to come. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, look at this, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's the first one. Look at 1 John 3. Let's, what does John say about what our body will look like? 1 John 3, more towards the end of the New Testament. 1 John 3, look at verse 2. He says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, look at this, we shall be like him. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 15, or chapter 15. Paul's going to lay out another picture of what is it that we're, our bodies are going to be like when we stand in front of God. Chapter 15, look at verse 35. He says this, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And I love Paul's response. You, and the actual word there is probably foolish is too nice. You idiot is probably the better word in our vernacular. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but, but, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another kind for animals, another kind for birds, another kind for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So what does that say if you add all that up? Paul understood right now, he's just a seed. That's all we are. And the idea that's such a beautiful picture, he says, is that God one day is going to take that seed being us and he's going to put us in the ground and that's just symbolizing the reality of death. But his whole point is, is watch what comes next. Watch out. I think I told you back in Easter, my wife is making a salsa garden. And she's making it, and we saw, and we put the little seeds in, and she put it in with a friend. And, and what's happening now is, is suddenly it's coming out of nowhere is jalapenos and, and cilantro and tomatoes and all these different things. But have you ever looked at how small those seeds are? They're tiny. 
And what comes out of them, Paul says, is absolutely something so beautiful in comparison to the little tiny seed that you put into the ground. And what he's trying to tell them is, is that you have no clue how beautiful that you're going to be when you are transformed, when you are resurrected, because you will be made to look like Jesus. And so what do our perfect bodies, or what do our bodies look like? Well, here's the first thing we find out, is that all throughout the New Testament, our bodies, it says, they will be perfect. How nice is that? To be in heaven and someone look at you and go, you've got a perfect body. (laughs) You too. (laughs) Now, I think initially in our head, we're like, oh, great. All the guys are like, I'm going to look like Adonis, you know, and there's just this thought of what, we don't even know what Adonis looks like. But in our culture, we, we totally love the guys that are all cut and ripped and skinny. Do you know in some cultures that it actually is more healthy to be a little plump? Man, those of us who are plump are like, yes, healthy. We don't know fully what our bodies are going to be like, but we know this, they're going to be perfect by nature. We'll never have sickness again. Right now, I've got this head cold up in my nose that I'm like, ugh, I can't even remember what my kids' names are right now because it's just there, but there's this side of it. No one will ever say, man, I just don't feel well in heaven. No one will ever say, man, I'm kind of hurting. No one will ever say those things because we'll be in this place. The seed will become what God intended it to be. The other part about it is, and I think this is one of the things that I look forward to most, is that in our perfect bodies, we'll also have emotions. In Revelation 6 and in Revelation 7, it talks about this idea that literally the angels and the people will have emotions towards God. They will cry out. There will be a a, a joyful noise. And and even inside of the Old Testament, the idea is is that in the future, we'll have laughter and joy, except it won't be like the laughter and joy that is so uh, caustic and nasty in this world. It'll be what God intended us to be. We'll laugh and we'll have joy at the correct things. Not only that, but we'll have senses Jesus felt and heard and tasted and saw. And the idea is is that because he did, we too will one day have those. The idea being that one day when we look into heaven in Revelation 2 and in Revelation 19, we'll be having feasts together. Can you imagine your sense of taste now except better? Oh my goodness. And Jesus, it says, is going to prepare a banquet for us, this wedding feast of the Lamb. And the first time you taste your food across the tongue that is better than anything you've ever had. Learning. In Revelation 4 through 6, it describes a deepening appreciation for God's greatness. In heaven, we're, we're going to continue to grow and to learn. In fact, the way Jesus put it, those entering the kingdom will be childlike. And have you ever watched a child learn and grow? It's amazing to watch. I watch my son sometimes and he drives me up the wall sometimes because he takes things apart and he can never get them back together and I don't know how to put them back together either after he's ripped them apart. But there's just this inquisitiveness, this desire to know more and learn more and it seems to be in heaven we're going to have that capacity. In other words, we won't be bored. We'll be actually doing things when we get there. We'll have rest. Oh, good. Revelation 14, 13, and Hebrews 4, 11 talk about this idea of rest. I mean, who doesn't want to just right now be there where it's like you will never hear these words again. Man, I'm just worn out. In fact, instead, it'll be the exact opposite. There'll be a vitality there like we've never known. 
In fact, the way it describes it is to enter into rest. Our relationships, the Bible calls us to love our neighbors ourselves. And can you imagine that in heaven what our relationships are gonna be like when we finally do love our neighbor as ourselves? when we don't get in the way, when we don't do something stupid? Not only that, but it seems to be we're gonna have all kinds of relationships that if you have eternity to meet everybody that's there, finally Facebook will make sense. How many friends you got? Oh, about five or six billion. Me too. We'll recognize one another. It says when they saw Jesus, they recognized him. People always ask me, will I recognize my family members when I get to heaven? The answer is yes. In fact, the way it seems to be that they, they line up heaven is that in heaven there will still be tribes and kingdoms and people that used to speak other tongues. And, and my concept of that is if they're lining them all like this, why wouldn't we be even around our families? I'm not saying we're still going to be married. And I'm, not, I'm not saying that we're still going to operate in, in that way in which kind of our family operates now. But it does seem to be that we're going to be organized in such a way that I will probably see my kids and my wife and all the different people around me that I know. There'll be culture there. There'll be race. There'll be music. Oh, can you imagine the first music you hear? Some of you in the back of your head think, oh, it's going to be country. (laughs) God help me. Some of you are like anything but rap. (laughs) Can you imagine coming in? And you're like... God's like, welcome, welcome. <laughs> we'll dance. I know some of you are like, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. We don't dance here. We're going to dance. And how cool is it going to be for the first time to show up? And you know those times where you just, something so exciting happens, you just want to dance? You kind of have this thing where you're like, which means probably in heaven, white man dance will be in. (laughs) See, what it seems to be in there is that you're not just going to be this mass of people either because it talks about your unique unique name written in the book of life. You're not going to lose your identity. You're still going to have your same name. And Paul, what he's looking at is, is that gave him hope. It gave him hope to live this life in, a, in, a, in what sometimes people will call a radical or sometimes people will call a, a reckless abandon. When, why in the world would that ever be considered ra- radical or reckless abandon when we've placed our hope and faith in a God that's to come and he's been faithful all the time? What Matt said when he was preaching a few months ago. But he goes on and he says this. It's not so much just this idea of this groaning for the future us, but pain and heartache and hardship, the very things that just weigh down upon us now, they also give us a confidence that's so unique. The other thing it does is it gives us a confidence to stand in front of Jesus one day in future judgment. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. He says this statement. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. And look at this, whether good or evil. Now, I think some people are going to read that and they're going to say, wow, okay, so what you're saying is is that one day 
I'm going to be judged by how I live my life. You guys, I thought you'd been telling me all along that this salvation thing was by faith alone. How in the world is it then if all, and, and the we, if you look at the we, look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. How many times do you see we? Twice. In this tent, we, verse 2, we, 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 us, us, our. All of it works down through it. So verse 10 is obviously speaking to believers when he talks about this idea of standing in front of Jesus Christ so that we receive what's due. So what's Paul talking about? I think the answer to it is found in Romans. And go with me to the book of Romans. Look at verse 5 because I want to make sure I'm crystal clear about what it is that's going to happen that gave Paul such confidence to stand in front of Jesus one day. Romans 5, look at verse 3. And Paul says this. More than that, and he says this, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces, look at this word, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts to the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what is he saying? Well, back in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, and just keep, keep your finger in Romans. We're going to be back there in just a second. He's going to talk about this idea. And if you look down in verse 2 or verse 3, this idea, uh, verse 3, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found, and here's this word, naked. End of verse, or the middle of verse 4, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. See, the thing that Paul understood is is that yes, on one end of it, the answer is, are we saved by faith alone? The answer is, of course, yes. Let me just give you confidence in that. Is that there is nothing whatsoever, Ephesians is so crystal clear, I can't get to that God. There is nothing I can do in and of myself to ever get to that God. And that's why Paul says it's not by works so that no one can boast. He's crystal clear on that. It's not faith plus works that gets me there. But listen to me very close. While it's not faith plus works, don't assume you have faith unless it works. Did you hear me? Please hear me. Faith plus works, I cannot get to heaven in any kind of way by somehow thinking I'm going to do something to inherit this eternal life. But while it's not faith plus work, The clarity which he's going to describe for us, though, is this idea of a faith that works. In fact, the way that he talks about it is in in Romans chapter 5 is that we're pushing down upon them is suffering. And oftentimes what we do is we look at suffering as such a bad thing. But for Paul, he understood suffering so much differently. He said, when suffering pushes down upon me, when the pressure of this life comes down upon me, something unique starts to happen to me. He said, suffering produces what does he say after that? Endurance. The idea is, and it's this, this bearing yourself up underneath, this producing of endurance, is this ability to handle things that come our way. James talked about it this way. He said, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. And the next thing he says is, then let this endurance have its perfect work, this idea of holding up underneath, because the the outcome of endurance in Romans 5 is, it produces character. James goes on to say it this way, that while we consider it all joy, but the outcome is that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What Paul is saying to us is that, yes, it's not by works that we're saved, but there's something about a life that's lived of just 
evidence of God's faith in our life over and over, this fruit just all throughout our life, that I'm now this person that as I've lived this life and I've seen not anything I've done, but what the Spirit of God has done in me, this idea is that when I stand in front of God one day, the whole thing is, is all these line of things that have evidenced the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus. See, the reason that I'm bringing this up and it's so important is that Paul then, by the end of his life, had so much evidence in his life of what God had done in it that he said, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I know what's laid up for me one day. I mean, don't you want to be that person? Have you ever been the one, ever done a, been at a funeral before where everybody's like, I don't know if he was really saved or not? I'm sick of doing those funerals. I'm sick of doing the funerals where everybody kind of looks and goes, I don't know, you know, he said some prayer back when he was seven and kind of didn't really live a life or anything. In other words, all throughout his life, according to 2 Corinthians 13, Paul would say, test yourselves to see if you're the faith. And he said, what if you don't pass that test? See, I think some of you in here, I can't wait to do your funeral. And I don't mean that weird. I just mean it as in I can't wait because there's just this long line of fruit that the Spirit of God has done in you, nothing that you've done of yourself. In fact, the way that he talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5 is, is that he says, look, he's prepared for us this very thing as God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That as life pushes down on certain people, what comes to the surface is just the Spirit of God in their life. And then when they stand in front of God one day, first of all, we know that Jesus Christ has paid for all this evil he talks about. That Jesus Christ will look at that one and say, Jesus Christ paid for that evil. It is completed. It is finished. You face it no more. But the next part of it does seem to be now, can you imagine standing in front of God as he recounts all the things that he did in your life through the Spirit? I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for the day when he does take and he looks at all the sin that I've done. He says, yeah, Jesus paid for that. Let me just show you now. Let me present to you what I did with your life. Have you ever wondered what God's done with your life? All these little nooks and crannies of people that you've affected that you have no clue. And then one day it seems to be that God, what he is going to do through this as he judges is to lay down for us what, it ha- what happened in our lives and why he did what he did. Here's why I brought this pain into your life. Here's why I brought this sorrow into your life. Every time that we have to give a kid back from foster care, I'm always thinking in my head, God, I can't wait to stand in front of you one day to know why that my wife and I did that. The things we did in our kids' lives. And so on one end, let me say it this way. If you're somebody in this room who has no evidence in your life, and yet you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Paul would say, test yourselves to see if you're really of the faith. I would hate for you to end up naked. That idea of naked is is to stand there and you have nothing at all whatsoever. There's no evidence. But you want to be clothed. And the idea is not just clothed with Christ's righteousness, but this idea, we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. And and the idea is, is that we have this long litany of proof to show it. If you're someone in this room, I'm telling you, I can't wait for the new creation, but I'm looking at all of you and saying, some of you may not be there. You've bought into a lie that somehow that faith is just a scent to a God when faith is so much bigger than that. It is placing my complete trust in him and following him. And the evidence of faith is obedience. You need to come to him today. 
to the rest of you that know Jesus, I can't wait to see you in new creation. I can already imagine what we're going to say to each other. It's going to be this. And you're going to go. And I'm going to go. We won't know what we just said, but we will totally understand. I mean, can't you wait for that day? The day that Jesus looks at you and says this, well done, good and faithful servant. That yes face, that, oh my gosh, you've finished your job. And I believe once we understand that where Paul was, this idea that we can bank everything on our future, we can in this life begin to live differently. We can live in such a way that we're storing up treasures in heaven, not on this earth. We can live what some might call radical which isn't that way at all. It's just believing that this life is so small in comparison to what we have. So if you need prayer today, we'd love for you to come forward for prayer. If today you want to be baptized and you want to tell Jesus, I want to follow you with everything that I am, the first act of obedience in every believer's life is supposed to be baptism. So if you haven't been baptized yet, come forward and just demonstrate your faith. It's not going to save you by any stretch of the imagination. But it is that way of telling God, God, I want to follow you. I want to have faith, faith that leads toward being obedient, towards doing what you're asking me to do. Maybe some of you are just down in the doldrums. Maybe life has just hit you hard. I don't know what's going on in your life, but we'd love to pray for you. And to the rest of you, I'd say, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. Amen. Jesus, thank you for this group of people. Thank you so much for who they are and who you've created them to be. God, would you please help us to be people that so frame our life on the future, not on the present. That, God, we would live in the present with, an, with a total eye on the future. That it would change us and make us different. That we'd hope different and live different. I beg you, in your precious name we pray.